You are listening to a special presentation of Superman and Batman. celebrate the world's finest team. However, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, Detective Comics number 27, which featured the very first appearance of the Dark Knight Detective, was released on or around April 18th, 1939, exactly 75 years ago this week. So, in this special episode, the Man of Steel temporarily is going to take a back seat for an all-out Star-Spangled Salute to the Cape Crusader. A tip of the cowl that I'm calling Happy Birthday, Batman. But how do you celebrate a character that's been around for 75 years and has been in virtually every medium available? Fans around the globe are celebrating Batman's birthday this year. And how can I add to that? Should I look at his origin story? Or maybe the greatest Batman stories ever told. Or maybe a modern classic. But what about the movies and TV shows and cartoons that undoubtedly introduced and, and kept the character in the minds of millions of people? I thought long and hard about these questions, and I considered different options as a way to pay tribute to one of the most famous comic book characters in the world. How can I... One nerd with a microphone and way too many comic books celebrate the Dark Knight's birthday. 
And the answer I kept coming to was that I can't. At least not alone. Much like Bob Kane needed Bill Finger, and Batman himself needs Robin, I needed help. So, to that end, I sent out invitations to several friends, fellow podcasters, and most importantly, Batman fans. And I asked them one question. Why has Batman persisted for 75 years? And I told them to bring along one of their favorite Batman comics that answered that question. So, what you're going to hear in this episode is three great conversations that explore various facets of Batman's character and and what makes him totally awesome. Along the way, there will be some interludes where I share my own recollections and memories and, and thoughts on the Dark Knight. So, please enjoy the conversations and my little way of saying, Happy Birthday, Batman! heard people say that your first exposure to something shapes how you view that thing. And I think that's definitely the case with me and Batman. My earliest and most vivid memories of Batman come from two sources. The Superpowers line of action figures and reruns of the 1966 television series. When I was a kid, I had many of the superpowers figures, including Batman, of course, as well as Robin, the Joker, and the ever-awesome Batmobile. And this was the mid to late 80s, so Batman was in the iconic gray suit with blue cape and cowl, boots and gloves. He had the yellow oval on his chest with the bat symbol inside. Even though I didn't know who they were at the time, the Batman figure, as well as the Robin and Joker figures, looked like Jose Luis Garcia Lopez or Jim Aparo artwork given three-dimensional form. The comics that came with the Superpowers figures, which were some of the first comic books I ever read, presented that very late Bronze Age early modern age, but not yet influenced by Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns, Batman. He was a detective, but action-oriented. He and his world were dark and mysterious, but not black and dour. He hung out with Robin, who was every bit the capable hero, but still at times in need of Batman's mentorship. His villains were fiendish rogues and maniacal madmen, not bloodthirsty killers and deranged psychotics. And then there was the 66 Batman show. And I remember first and foremost watching these on a television in my parents' bedroom. And this was an old black and white TV with rabbit ears. It was staticky, it didn't always work, and it got exactly one channel, which just so happened to be the channel that 
took advantage of the late 80s Batmania to fill an hour of programming each weekday evening with reruns of the 66 Batman show, which is a series that is both loved and hated in, in equal measure by different groups of fans. But this show presented to me a Batman that, while campy, yes, always stood up for the right. Being the age I was at that time, I never took it seriously, but at the same time, I never quite saw it for the camp that it is either. But this is a Batman where there is no gray. There's no opaque mystery or dreary solemnness here. He's bright, he's working, you know, side by side with the police as a duly deputized officer of the law. The villains are colorful and clever. They might get the best of Batman for a time, but in the end, the hero always triumphs, and we learn every episode that crime doesn't pay. And these two versions, both in their similarities and their differences, formed my vision of Batman. A friend told me recently, while we were discussing the character, that I like a happy Batman. A word he used to contrast the Batman of, say, the Christopher Nolan films. And looking back at my earliest exposures to the characters, I can definitely understand why that is. Why I like a happy Batman. But also looking at those exposures, I can see how their differences have made it easier for me to accept and enjoy other versions of the character. Whether it's the... the pulp mystery man of the golden age or the silver age alien fighting adventurer the body armor wearing hero of the tim burton films or virtually any other even though that particular incarnation might not align 100 percent with how i view the character in his purest form Joining me now is the host of, well, a few podcasts that he will tell you all about in a little bit, but most important to, the, to this specific show is that he is host of Taking Flight, a Robin and Nightwing podcast. So it is my pleasure to welcome to the show, Tom Panarese. Hey, how are you doing? So what book did you bring for us tonight? I have brought Detective Comics number 574, uh, which... Is from uh, May of eight. Well, it's cover dated May of nineteen eighty seven, but it was first out on uh, February twenty sixth, nineteen eighty seven, and it's part of the Mike W. Barr Alan Davis run from from right after the post crisis on Infinite Earths. And um, just uh, just to take a look at our cover, um, the cover is by Alan Davis and Paul Neary, and, and Paul Neary was inking quite a bit of Alan Davis's work at this point, um, and uh, it shows. Batman carrying uh, the fallen body of Robin, and as he walks out of the fire, out of a fire, and Batman's face is completely in shadow. And uh, if you look at the cover, it is pretty much an exact uh, 
callback to the very famous Superman holding Supergirl mm. pose from Crisis on Infinite Earths number seven, which was jo- drawn by uh, George Perez. Um, although Batman, like I said, there's no facial expression on Batman, so it's you know dark. It's, it's a beautiful cover. It's it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. And and um, I remember getting. I, I think I, I bought this when I was like about twelve or thirteen years old. And I remember, I think I paid like a couple of bucks for it. And I bought it specifically for the cover because it was up on the wall of the comic store. And I had no idea what happened in it. I knew it wasn't the Death of Robin issue. Because um, I own Death in a Family on in trade paperback, but I was just like, I need to have this because this cover is just so gorgeous. Um, and I'm, so, the I, I really like one more comment about the cover. Yeah. I really like that there's no uh, words or no text on the cover. You've got mm-hmm. the title and the creative team, but there's no, you know, yeah, Robin's life is at stake or anything like mm-hmm. that. It really adds to the drama of the scene. Yeah. And unlike a lot of covers like nowadays that are just basically pinups, this does have a tie-in with the story. Right. Um, and and uh, it, um, from what I understand, I've actually never read the issue before this because um, this and the issue before it are two issues from this run that are not available um, digitally. And I don't own the other issue. But apparently at the end of 573, which is a Mad Hatter issue, Robin does get shot. So this is the continuation of that, and yet we'll see quite a bit of of Batman's uh, origin in it. So um, our creative team, <clears throat> excuse me, our creative team on the story, which is called "My Beginning and My Probable End," is uh, Mike W. Barr, writer; Alan Davis and Paul Neary are the artists. Starkings, I believe that's Richard Starkings, uh, is the letterer. Adrian Roy is your colorist and your editor, of course, at this point in time was Denny O'Neill. Um, so the story opens with the depiction of a nice neighborhood named Park Row, which 25 years ago was upscale. That is until a murder happened. And now it's known by another name, which is Crime Alley. Two thugs stand outside in the rain and consider robbing the Thomas Wayne Memorial Clinic, which is run by Dr. Leslie Tompkins. One of them thinks it's a great idea, while another thinks, while another knows that it's protected by the Batman, who shows up immediately and scares them away. But it's not scaring them that's his main concern tonight. It's the fallen boy wonder, Jason Todd, whom he is carrying in his arms as he looks for Leslie to help him. Leslie puts Jason on the table and begins checking his vitals while she asks Bruce what happened. Batman explains that Jason was shot by a 38 caliber pistol courtesy of the Mad Hatter and that it is Batman, his fault. Leslie tells him that Jason's still alive and he does have a chance. She then asks Batman if he prays. No, he says. She replies, you might start. Batman sits outside the operating room in a chair and thinks back to the murder that we saw on page one, which was the murder of his parents. We see it happen as it always does. The crook points a gun at them. He tries to take Martha's necklace. And when Thomas steps in to stop him, the crook shoots him dead and then shoots his wife as well. Bruce screams and points an accusing finger at the criminal. He even gets off a couple of hits in on him before the criminal smacks him with the butt of his gun and then runs off, chucking the pistol into the nearby park. The police arrive, take the bodies, and leave Bruce there. Leslie Tompkins takes the kid in and says she'll do what she can to help him. And that's where we come out of the flashback with Leslie telling Batman 
She's done all she can to help Jason. She says he might, if he makes it through the night, he'll survive. And then Batman says he's strong. He's a fighter. Leslie then takes this opportunity to chastise him for having Jason as Robin in the first place, especially after that close call with Dick, which was for reference, I believe, Batman number 408 story called Did Robin Die Tonight, which had come out just a couple of months prior to this or thereabouts. Batman says that he did it for him because it was a way to save him, the same way he was chosen to be Batman. And we see the flashbacks to Jason's origin, as well as the famous shot of the bat flying through the Wayne Manor window that inspired Bruce Wayne to become Batman. Leslie calls bull on all of this. He eventually, and she eventually says that he reminds her of Bruce, or Jason reminds her of Bruce the night after his parents' funeral. She says that she was surprised that Bruce fell asleep so quickly. Of course, unknown to her, what Bruce actually did was sneak out of her house, go to his parents' gravesite, make his very famous graveside vow, and then he found the gun that murdered them and stole it. Leslie then tells him that she feels responsible for the way Bruce turned out. She tried her best, but she could never stop Bruce from becoming what he eventually became. Batman tells her that there's nothing to be guilty over and that she's done so many great things. They talk some more about his life, how he was once suspended for beating up a schoolyard bully, how he adopted the bored playboy persona upon attending college when he realized he was going to have to carry on his crusade in secret rather than than out in the open. And then Leslie asks him if he thinks he's making a difference. He says, sometimes no. And she asks, then why do you do it, Bruce? Batman turns the tables on her and asks why she runs an inner city clinic. She replies, because I have to. And he says, I know. She asks about Bruce Wayne and then asks him to think of Jason. And he tells her that he does. By making him Robin, he's giving this kid an outlet for his rage, a way to expunge his anger and get on with his life. And instead, he may have killed him. He always thought this would be his probable end, but not Jason's. Leslie tells Bruce that while she can't deny that she waits for the day when Batman isn't necessary, she's glad he's here. Robin wakes up and Bruce unmasks, looking at him with his face and not his costume, saying, Jason, Jay, lad, I'm sorry. I won't force you to do this any. And Jason cuts him off and says, are you kidding, Bruce? We've got work to do. And we end with the the smiling faces of Batman and Robin in the sky behind the uh, Crime Alley Clinic and the following quote from Leaves of Grass by Paul Whitman. Paul Whitman? Walt Whitman. I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars and the narrowest hinge in my hand puts to scorn all machinery. And the next issue uh, box says coming next month, Batman year two, (laughs) which is a great storyline in its own. I want to say that this was a great pick for this show. Thanks. I was was really hoping folks that I invited on would pick books that really – like I said when I talked to you about it, I really wanted to focus on why Batman is such a great character and why he has persisted for 75 years. And this book, it really gets to the heart of why Batman does what he does, but in a way that made for an emotional, compelling read. Yeah, and, and I think it's the um, – <clears throat> one of the things that I've, I've always noticed about Batman, I mean being the person who podcasts around Robin, I do tend to focus a little bit on his supporting cast – as well as as him and and this is one where he has a really strong 
this era, he really has a strong supporting cast about him. Mike Dubuar, um recreated the character of Leslie Tompkins into this uh, woman who ran this cl- this inner city clinic and was very um, not afraid of Bruce and not afraid to just call him on his um, on his you know grandstanding and whatever machismo he might have, you know, as I'm Batman. Um, whereas in the pre-crisis uh, story that she, that she's most famous for appearing in, which was uh, there's no hope in crime alley. She's just kind of this nice little old lady that he protects because she helped him out. And, and, I, and, and I think what you've got here is this just uh, this, you're right. It's, it's kind of a great examination of, why he does what he does and um, in contrast to somebody else who is carrying on a similar crusade even though it's a you know she's not dressing up in a costume and beating people up she's she's saving people who who need saving in in some other way right and I when I was doing my notes for the show I, I got to wondering why the character of Leslie Tompkins has never appeared in any of the live action movies because hmm. she's such a strong character I think and a, and a, a good addition to the Batman mythology um, I it, it, I think it's because she for for all that she is here and then in year two beyond the Mike W. Barr stuff and beyond what little appearances she had the, the earlier version of course like I said the, in the Danny O'Neill story but beyond this Mike W. Barr stuff I want to say she kind of goes away for quite a while hmm. up until um, like war games or like, you know, sometime around there. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm fuzzy on that because I've only read so much of that. But um, and from what I understand, there was a point maybe in the mid 90s, uh, right around zero hour where I don't want to say all of Mike W. Barr's run on Detective, but quite a bit of it was actually retconned because at least year two was retconned because uh, Danny O'Neill decided in the mid-90s that Batman never caught Joe Chill. And year two is the post-crisis retelling of the confrontation between Bruce Wayne and Joe Chill. So maybe that was part of it too. She was just kind of a character that, kind of the way Vicky Vale just kind of got, you know, um, swept under the rug or just kind of fell by the wayside after uh, like probably like after like what 90, 91, 92 they kind of had her back right around the time of the Burton first Burton film and then after a year or two she was gone too so but you're right that she would have been a great character um, especially since she knows who Batman is right and and she would have been a, almost like a good female counterpart to like an Alfred or somebody. Although a lot of times I think they use Alfred in the role mm-hmm. that, that she plays here. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, to get into the story a little bit, I, I really enjoyed, maybe enjoyed is the wrong kind of <laughs> grim word, but I really enjoyed the flashback to the murder of the Waynes and, and that it's mm-hmm. all told literally from Bruce's point of view. Yes. Um, that part is only, what, like four pages long, but it's very dramatic and, and emotional. And you really get a sense of how Bruce's entire world has just been shattered. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real gut punch to me is that 
after the Waynes are killed, you know, the, the cops are showing up, and it's just another day to them. The people who are working the scene are making jokes about calling the meat wagon, and they're handing out coffee, and you just really get a sense of the, the stark isolation and loss that Bruce is going through at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this is something that we don't... Um, I don't think we've really seen this in, in a retelling of Batman's origin. Uh, we've seen instances where Leslie Tompkins comes by and says, you know, here, and takes him in. But you're right, I don't... Uh, it's certainly not in year one. And um, in other retellings, I, I think you're right. And, and it's a... Um, I don't want to say all cops are like this because right. <laughs> I'd be insulting members of my family, but um, but this is a sort of like um, that that feeling that okay, this is the job type of attitude that some guys take when they're when they're this. And for all you know, it's them just this is their way of coping with the fact that they have a very brutal murder scene in front of them, um, and they're kind of ignoring the kid. But I, I think you're right. I, I love the fact that it is, um, the camera wise, it is a point of view shot for the entire time from young Bruce to the point where the, the last panel on page nine is him holding his hands out as the, as the morgue, the ambulance takes the bodies away saying no wait, Like, you know, he's, he's kind of like, he's, He's trying to wrap his head around exactly what happened, and that's when Leslie shows up. So, uh, we get some nice discussion about who the real person is, Batman or Bruce Wayne, and if Bruce is just another disguise. And to an extent, I think he is, but then I think Batman is as well. I mean, truthfully, like a lot with uh, Superman and Clark Kent, I think the real character is somewhere between the faces he puts on yeah. with each persona. And and this is the this is the Batman that that I've always kind of identified with that the one that I've always liked where there where the real person is that middle ground, you know where because um, this was a time when Batman was they would use Bruce Wayne very well as a character um, because later writers. Uh, you'd forget that Batman was Bruce Wayne at all because Bruce Wayne wouldn't appear enough or they wouldn't use him, you know, as well as they could. Uh, but but here, you know, they 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 really, Barr did this, Alan Grant would do this pretty well, like where they really would kind of, you know, look at that kind of dichotomy between the two and you knew that like right there in the middle somewhere is the real person. And I think people like Leslie exist to keep him from going over to one's over to the side of Batman too much. I think that's Robin. Right. I think that's Robin's purpose half the time too. You know that that he is saving people. You know, right. not you know. So, and that that actually ties in well to my next and kind of the biggest note I had about the story as a whole. The thing that resonated me resonated most to me was at the end when he's getting to the bottom of. Um, Jason is Robin and he says let me get to the page here he says I remember what it was like I suppose I was lonely I don't want Jason to to grow up as I did I didn't know what to do I didn't know how to fight my war until my youth was gone I wanted to give Jason an outlet for his rage wanted him to expunge the anger and get on with his life and I think while it's a very pessimistic approach to the character I kind of like that in his heart of hearts Batman realizes that his end probably isn't going to be a good one, 
mm-hmm. but that he's going to do everything in his power to make sure that no one else has to suffer like he did. And he wants to help Jason and even Dick before him and make sure they don't end up as the dark, lonely brooder that, that he's become. Yeah, and and this is the version of Jason that had just been reestablished because um, I'm not... I'm familiar with the pre-crisis Jason Todd to a certain extent. I don't have a lot of um, a lot of, of stories with him in it, but it's my understanding that the pre-crisis Jason Todd was basically a Dick Grayson clone. Like there, there was a lot of similarities between the two of them, um, even if the origins were were different. Um, but here, this is the Jason Todd who he found swiping the hubcaps off of the Batmobile, the one that would eventually go on to get become a very, very angry young man, um, especially when Jim Starlin was writing him, and and become reckless and become um, uh, and get killed off uh, by a 900 number. And um, uh, uh, sorry, the Joker. And um, establish the whole pattern of, of, for a little while, Robin's getting beaten by crowbars. Um, but seriously, there's like I was when I was early early episodes of Taking Flight when I'm through like when I'm going through death and then the lonely place of dying and like all these storylines. There's a scene where Robin's getting hit with a crowbar by somebody. I'm like, come on, is this a trope now? But this is the Jason that 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 was was angry. Whereas Dick was Dick before his parents are killed is a happy kid. You know, he's he's a circus performer. He is, you know, he he has this childhood of now I don't necessarily like the circus, but it is sort of like, you know, the kind of kid fantasy type of thing. Like, you know, you're growing up in a place where everything is like fun. And and but Jason has the opposite. Jason is this kind of street punk where his mother um, first of all, he doesn't know that his mother's not his real mother, but that's you know later on. But um, his father's a criminal, and he's not even a good criminal. He's just some sort of uh, you know guy who gets hired by people like Two Face every once in a while, you know, for for jobs and stuff. So he's kind of like a petty, petty crook, and he's living. He's essentially living on the streets, and and so he's got a lot of anger. He's got a lot of stuff, and I can understand why Bruce would, you know, he would see that side of himself in Jason, and it's almost like. I want to say he's trying to correct his mistakes from his own youth, but but yeah, he does kind of see that he's saving him. I think that's why when Tim comes along and Tim isn't saved, Tim Tim is kind of it, the script kind of flips. Tim and essentially in a in a big way saves Bruce to a certain extent, but that's a few years down down the road and, and many storylines down the road from from here. But yeah, I, I think you're right. It's it's a great moment where he describes like why he has Jason in this costume. And it's not like Jason's an unwilling participant. Jason's like, no, we've got something to do, man. This is, you know, I'm in this with you, you know. But to play devil's advocate to that, at the same time, Bruce is the adult. And, <laughs> to, you know, but anyway. It's <laughs> this is where you just kind of look at it and go, nope, it's a comic book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's very hard to justify. Um, I think Jason's supposed to be about twelve or thirteen. Uh, you know, so it's very hard to justify him taking this kid on. 
as opposed to Tim, who's about 13 or 14 when he becomes Robin, who's like, I'm going to be Robin. And he's almost like, I'm going to be Robin, whether you like me or like it or not. And, and, and Batman's kind of like, well, I have, at least let me teach you, right. you know, whereas, uh, whereas Jason, I'm like, I'm taking him in and, and it, part of it is because he never, um, Part of it is because he wants to save Jason, but one of the things, and and it's not like explicitly stated here because it it, it develops over time, you know, through conversations and other stories around this era, is that he misses Dick Grayson. You know, he fired. This is the reality where he fired him because the Joker shot him and, and he was reckless. He's like, I don't need this on my hands. You're fired. As opposed to you know, back in 1984 where Dick basically grew out of it and he turned around and he said, you know, I have to go be my own man. And they parted kind of on very, uh, amicable terms. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's a great issue for if you know enough of the history of both characters, right? It's a nice little snapshot of it. And I also appreciated that it was, it, you, you pointed out that it continued from issue 573, but mm-hmm. Had I just picked up this issue by by itself, I wouldn't have even known I was reading the second half of the story. So it, yeah. it very much stood on its own. And, and that's the that's always been the case with me. I actually, like I said, I've never actually read five seventy three. Um, I uh, I don't think I, I knew that for years that this was that there was I, that you know that was the story the end of the story before this. But you're right; it, it kind of begins in medias res, but it's. It, this would be a great jumping on point for anyone who wants to read Batman because you get the origin. But you also have some drama uh, on the side of uh, of you know of Robin clinging to life through most of the issue when he wakes up in the end. So now I'm going to be showing my ignorance here about when various Batman runs happened. But how far into the Mike W. Barr run is this? This is um, I think Barr's got about five or six more issues left. So he's got four for year one, and I think he sticks around for about two issues okay. after this. And then um, you've got a couple of fill-in people. There's a Millennium crossover, and um, and then Alan Grant. The, the Alan Grant, Norm Brayfogle era comes in a few months after the Mike W. Barr run ends. This is Alan Davis's second to last issue. Oh. Um, the next issue, which is part one of year two, is his last issue. And then Todd McFarlane does parts two, three, and four of year two. And then I don't remember who the penciler is on, on his last couple of issues. And, That's quite a switch on our teams, isn't it? Yeah. Davis it, to Todd McFarlane. It is. Um, when I, I first read year two when I was you know 13, um, I, I have the trade. Uh, I picked up the trade at like Walden Books. And um, I love the McFarlane art because that was what 1990. So it was like McFarlane, you know. McFarlane was McFarlane. Um, it's what's funny is that the first the first issue by Davis is gorgeous. This is gorgeous, and I've really come to love Alan Davis's art in the years. The two issue, the two middle issues, parts two and three of of uh, of here two are actually really nice because McFarlane's being inked by somebody else. But in the fourth issue, he's inked by himself and he's inking himself and you can kind of tell the weaknesses in all of his artwork, but that's a whole other discussion for something else. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here. Um, But yeah, I mean the, that's the other thing about this is um, not only, not only is the story great, not only is it a great jumping on point, 
but the art itself is is gorgeous. Oh yeah, it, it's worth worth the seventy five cents you would have paid for it back then. Anyway, uh, I mean just just the first page, which is three panels. It's the same storefront, Shea Gotham and Park Row. The, the the first one is a, a happy scene with people exiting a theater. The second one, it, it's a faraway shot. You see the murder of the Waynes from a different angle than you usually do. Mm-hmm. And the third shot is present day, where the the restaurants boarded up, and you know you see the smoke from the from the manhole cover, and the, the theater's been closed. like you know it, it it's gone from Park Slope or whatever it was. Um, Park Row, Park Slope's a neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, Park Row to uh, Crime Alley, and it's just a great, you know. There's some there's some narration there. It's a great, um, it's a great way to get us into the story. And then, like I said, um, and he draws a classic. This is the classic gray costume, blue boots, cape, cowl, Batman. Right. Um, because this is before they changed the costume to make it darker, and and and. You know, black and stuff, and this is the pixie boots Robin. And again, Davis just Davis really knows how to how to use a, for lack of a better term, camera angle. You know, <laughs> just yeah. That the final panel on page five where Batman is sitting alone in the <sighs> waiting room. Yeah, I'm looking at that right now, and I'm like, wow, that just you know, um, that just that just brings it brings it home really well. Mm-hmm. Well, did you have any other comments about the story? Um, I uh, let's see. No, I th- this is this is pretty much uh, we got pretty much over what I uh, we talked pretty much about what I what I had gotten down. I did have a note, um, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Batman and Robin. Is Batman is a misguided father mm-hmm. that that he like I, he he sets up so many defenses, and she. The thing I love about Leslie is that she just she sees through all of this because she's known him since he was ten, yeah. And he he's just like you know he's a good fighter, and it's it's sort of this, it's such a macho moment for him, and it's clearly he's putting up a defense because he's scared, but he doesn't like. But the Batman does not get scared, you know. I mean. Like you know that the outward persona, you know, and right. and and um and and Davis just draws him with a square jaw, and he's you know Fist he's so imposed. Oh yeah, and 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 she's just like she's just like cut the you know, crap, well, Bruce. Yeah, yeah, cut the crap exactly, and and that's what I that's what I loved about this, and I and I loved how it um you know how it went through not just the murder. And not just um, the the, and not just her picking him up, but like how he studied and how he cultivated the uh, how he established the Playboy persona and, and all the little things that make the Bruce Wayne and Batman character. And he does it in just a couple of pages here and there um, because you just need this one issue to do it. And uh, and it gives us a really kind of full look at who Batman is and and how the lengths he's gone to to create. You know, Bruce has gone to to create Batman, to create Bruce Wayne, and 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 you know how it just shows in those panels. It's page um, seventeen where he's just kind of like blowing off college. It shows him establishing the Bruce Wayne persona, 
and which is this flake, this playboy. Right. And it's early. This is, this is, you know, he's, he's 19, 20 years old. And it, it goes, it shows that he's very driven. He's very determined to do something about what he saw. And, and that speaks to him either as, you know, somebody who is, you know, it's just, it's either Admiral that he's very driven or you're going to diagnose him as a sociopath, but I'm going to say he's very, very driven. <laughs> um, and, and I think, again, it's just, you know, the idea of Batman, the crusader, but I like this kind of, you know, where Leslie can bring out this kind of softer, like softer side in him, but the idea that, that there is a vulnerability there still, that he's not all, you know, darkness, and, you know, no parents and everything else I've heard on that Lego movie song that I hear every time I listen. <laughs> so, but yeah, this is, I'm, I'm, this is just, this has become like, this is one of those great single issues that, uh, that I wish was available. I think it's available like in the Alan Davis hardcover. Um, and other than that, you have to track down the individual issue. I wish it was up on Comixology because I'd say like, go get it. Cause there would be all of like a buck 99 and it's worth every penny of it. So well, this is, this is kind of a tangent, but it's sort of related mm-hmm. to what we've been talking about. Okay. Um, where do you stand on whether or not Bruce should have caught Joe, the killer of his parents? Do you like that idea or do you not? I like it in the sense that in the the first time I ever read that story was the original version of the story. I read it in the great, greatest Batman stories ever told trade from 89. I like the idea that it comes about years into his career. Okay. That I think that I think that if he catches Joe Chill too early, I don't know. It, it's like then you actually start to wonder like, well, why are you still doing this? But he's been like at, at the point where he originally caught Joe chill and then the retelling and the untold uh, legend of the Batman miniseries. Um, and then even in year two, it's actually kind of early. And I, in all honesty, if not for full circle, which is actually a really good, it's, an, it's, it's technically out of continuity. Um, but it's the sequel to year two. If not for that, the whole Joe chill in year two is kind of superfluous. Like you could do year two without Joe chill. But um, I think that the, the, the original version of it where it's been years and chills kind of, you know, this boss and, and Batman crosses paths coincidentally with him. And it's like, I finally have the chance to do this in that, you know, the crusade was never about, finding the guy and getting revenge. I mean, the crusade was about helping people. And, and, and I think when you've established that well enough and that, you know, that even if he catches the guy is going to keep on going, he's going to keep on being Batman. Um, I think it works then in as much as I like your two, I, that's one of the faults I find with it, where I think it might be too early in his career because he hasn't really established himself as a crime fighter, he's still, you know, his, his relationship with Gordon is still developing, you know, um, you know, one of the best parts about the original version of it is that he's got Robin with him. And, um, when he goes to confront Joe chill, he does it alone. He's like, no Rob, he's like, basically Robin, you're going to stay behind. I'm going to do this alone. And of course, yeah, yeah. But, and he does, but it's, but it's like, I don't know. It's, it, it, there's, there's more, there's something richer, about it being when he's been doing this for a few years rather than like right away. And, you know, you can understand why he would still go on with this crusade, but, but I, I've always loved that original. Um, I'm going to say it's like a bill finger, uh, 
Bill Finger, Bob Kane story, um, I'd have to look up the actual specific credits on it because the version I have says by Bob Kane. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, but no, I, I, I think, I think if told right, it, it works. Um, you know, I wasn't, I've always, but I've always loved the fact that it was, that it was just Joe Chill and that it was, um, right. Just a random yeah. mugging. Yeah. I, I never liked the fact that they, that they brought, like, I never liked it in the, in the, the Tim Burton Batman film that it was Jack Napier. Right. It just, that that didn't need to be there. Yeah. So. I seem to hold what is more of an unpopular opinion and and that I like the take when we, when he never finds who Mm -hmm. shot his parents. Cause I I just think it drives him forward. And as, as long as you get writers who can keep it from becoming the, you know, the gritted teeth, my parents are dead cliche that we see so often, you know, when he never catches the killer, I think that killer becomes kind of a symbol that helps propel Batman into continuing to do what he does. And if mm-hmm. the killer is caught and he's given a name and a face, it just it just feels like that motivation is diminished and it somehow makes the whole story less epic. But you know, at the at the end at the end of the day, I think Batman is still a character who doesn't want anyone else to get hurt or, or to go through yeah. what he did. And you know, whichever whichever route you go, I think you can you can yeah. have that. I think you put it best because you could do it either way. You just have to have the right writer doing it right? <laughs> because, because there are those writers who will, who will dwell on it to the point where it becomes almost parody of itself. Um, you know, and like, you know, let's mention because there's some, there are times in Batman stories where it's mentioned too much. You know, like, okay, did you know his, his parents are, not, are are dead? Yeah, okay, it's because you tell us every single issue. <laughs> yeah. Some writers go to that well too often and some writers don't. But then again, some writers go to the, you know, the 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 Batman knows everything and is completely infallible well, you know, too often too. You know, how many times, how many times in a Justice League story is a villain going to underestimate Batman because he doesn't have any powers? Right. <laughs> you know, like, we, we've done this. Well, so. Tom, I want to, I want to thank you very much for coming on. And I'm really glad you picked this book. I mean, not only cool. was it spot on for what I was wanting to discuss in this episode, but I'd never read this issue before. And I'm really, really glad that I got the opportunity. Um, oh, this is great. No, this is great. This is fun. We'll have to get together down the road. I don't know how you feel about Superman, but we'll have to get together down the road for a proper episode of the show because normally I talk about Superman and Batman team-ups. But um, I am – most of my exposure to Superman in the comics has been in uh, the From Crisis to Crisis era. Okay. But I've been a fan of Superman, um, not to the passion that you and like Mike Bailey and and you guys have uh, since the – since I was a little kid because the 78 – Christopher Reeve movie um, was one of the first movies I watched repeatedly mm. as a little kid because I was born in '77. So, okay. so that's the and that and the Super Friends of my youth. So yeah, I, I've I've um, I started collecting comics because of Batman, and um, it always seemed natural. Oh, I'm going to pick up some Superman. So I've I've been an on and off fan of Superman as far as reading him in the comics um, for for years. So yeah, if you ever want to get together and do a dust off something either if it's a world's finest or if it's something more recent we would definitely be up for that all right 
Uh, why don't you tell the folks where they can find your various podcasts and your website? Sure. Um, to start off, the like you said, the t- the the podcast that's most um, germane to this one is Taking Flight. It is a podcast about Robin and Nightwing. You can find that over at the Batman Universe. Uh, that comes out just about every two weeks. And as of this recording, I'm in the middle of a season of looking at team-ups, uh, starting with Batman and Robin through the decades, looking at uh, doing several episodes where I just do a Batman and Robin story from a different decade. Um, and I'm around the 1970s or 1980s right now, and then I'm going to go on to look at stuff with like Superman and the Justice League and the Titans and stuff like that. Um, and I cover Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, you know, whomever I can uh, whoever strikes my fancy at the moment. Um, I have two other podcasts. Uh, one of them is In Country. It is a podcast where I'm taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, uh, which that is over at incountry.podomatic.com. And that's uh, just about every two weeks. I'm up to about issue 19 or so at this point. Um, and I take a break every once in a while to look at a movie or novel or something that surrounds the Vietnam War. And my main website and my sort of main podcast, as you will, is Pop Culture Affidavit. Um, every week at, at the blog, I post uh, a blog entry or an essay about something completely random in the world of popular culture. It could be mu- music, movies, comics. Uh, television or anything that I'm just interested in. And then I have a podcast associated with that, which drops about every three weeks to one month. Um, And this particular year, uh, 2014, I'm doing a series of episodes called 1994, the most important year of the 90s, where I'm looking, taking a look back 20 years at different things that happened in 1994. And so far I've done, I'll be be, uh, talking about comics at one point. I've just about to release an episode about reality bites and uh looking at some and i looked at uh, green day's album dookie so uh just kind of cut out there so popcultureaffidavit.com is where you can find um all of that all right well thank you again very much for coming on uh right now we're going to take a break and then i will be back with another guest television show informed my view of Batman, they also had a big effect on how I view his villains, though really more so who I view as his villains. To me, and I really doubt I'm alone here, but to me, Batman's A-list rogues, when I think of the top tier of his rogues gallery, I think of the Joker, the Penguin, the Riddler, and Catwoman period. And that shouldn't take anything away from any of his other villains. I mean, Batman has a really great rogues gallery. But when I think of Batman, and I think of his villains, Joker, Penguin, Riddler, and Catwoman. Because they are the four I most remember 
from the TV series and subsequent cartoons. There are other villains that were a fairly significant part of the TV series to various levels of infamy, such as the Mad Hatter, or Egghead, or even King Tut. And there were some that really became a bigger part of my knowledge with Batman the Animated Series, such as Ra's al Ghul, Clayface, and the Ventriloquist. But none of them have... While I like quite a number of those villains, none are the first to come to mind when I think of Batman's villains. The one odd member in Batman's cast of rogues is Mr. Freeze. This is a character who was introduced in 1959. He was in several episodes of the 66 series, albeit portrayed by a different actor in each appearance. He appeared several times throughout the Bronze Age. He's appeared in comics and even had a figure in the third wave of my much-beloved Superpowers line. But I have no memory of anything related to this character prior to when I saw him on Batman the Animated Series. Granted, that series defined the character as we know him today, but I have no recollection of ever seeing or, or reading anything with him prior to that, which is something that I just find strange. Now, if only I could say that about his use in Batman and Robin. A long time ago, in a podcast far, far away, two men set out on a bold mission to cover everything Batman from the beginning. Unfortunately, the best laid plans of mice and nerds often go awry, and that mission, much like the one of the original Enterprise, and yes, I'm really mixing my references here, but let's just go with it, ended early. But for now, for one night only, we're getting the band back together. I'm very happy to welcome my next guest to the show, the brains behind Legends of the Batman, Michael Kaiser. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thanks for that introduction. <laughs> uh, and, and notice how I called you the brains because clearly yes. I, I was the good-looking one of the two. Right. Ones, so. Of course. No denying that. Yeah. Uh, and Star Trek and Batman do kind of go together in my brain for some reason. I'm not sure why. Maybe because they're both very 60s popular in some way, but anyway. Well, there was that, uh, there, there was like a pilot that Adam West and William Shatner did for a oh. show, I can't remember the name of the show. Wow, I did not know that. Yes. That was, is very cool. They only did one episode, because it never went anywhere, but. Anyway, yeah. so wow. what's, what story are we looking at tonight? I picked a story called The Man Who Falls. Um, I probably mentioned it I feel like I mentioned it a half a dozen times on our previous show, but maybe it was just once or twice. I don't know. I found myself coming back to it a lot when we were talking about old school, golden age Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a story that uh, came out in 1990. It was printed originally in and only that I know of in trade paperback form, which is kind of interesting. It's an original story that was put into a trade paperback with a bunch of reprints. 
um, which I didn't know at the time when I owned the trade paperback, but only learned later that it was never, you know, part of a just like a Secret Origins comic or something like that. Um, it was written by Denny O'Neill with art by Dick Giordano and uh, lettering by John Costanza and colorist Tom McCraw. Um, and the story opens with Batman perched on a gargoyle, peering down at a skylight and visualizing how any minute now he will be dropping down from his stoop and crashing into the window below to beat up whatever bad guy lays beneath, as he has done countless times before in his career as a totally awesome Batman. But Batman, feeling introspective tonight, stops flashing forward and instead finds himself flashing back through his life to another fall he experienced as a young boy when he crashed through hidden rickety planks of some kind on the ground of Wayne Manor and fell into a dark hidden cave below. Alone and terrified, from out of the darkness he is seized upon by a flurry of bats disturbed by his fall, and he shrieks in terror as he is engulfed by their flapping wings. Finally, he is rescued by his father, who chastises him for being so careless, while his mother comforts him and assures him that he did not, in fact, just experience actual hell itself. Uh, Batman's thoughts then move on to that fateful night when his parents were taken from him, gunned down by a cowardly criminal in the darkened alley, in a darkened alley, and the vow he took to take on the criminal underworld. Um, he then thinks to a time when he's about 14 and how he begins traveling the world, learning what he needed to know from many campuses and universities and sometimes seedier locations like back alleys, <laughs> uh, never staying long, never making friends, learning to ignore uh, the need for human companionship, posing all the while as a disinterested rich snot. Um, at age 20, he enters into FBI training, but after six weeks decides that writing reports and obeying regulations and just generally working within the system will not uh, satisfy his vow, and so he travels once more, this time searching out the world for masters. So in China, he thinks about the time he trained for one year in China with a master Kirigi, learning the art of sweeping the floor, making rice, but eventually learning super awesome martial arts fighting. And then he thinks about his time in France when he trained under a man named Ducard, who showed him the art of brutality, deception, and cunning. And then he thinks about a time where he had to leave civilization altogether to track down a guy named Willie Doggett, who was uh, the world's most eminent detective. Um, and at that point, while he and Doggett were tracking down a killer on an unnamed snowy mountaintop, Doggett was shot dead by their target, and Bruce loses his jacket in the process of taking the killer down. Near death from exposure to the elements, he is rescued by an Indian shaman wearing a mask of the beast sacred to his tribe. Guess which beast that would be? The mask of the bat. The shaman tells Bruce, Bruce he has the mark of the bat. Eventually, despite all those bat signs, Bruce returns home, still not completely sure how to fulfill the vow he made to his murdered parents. He goes out on patrol, disguised as a war vet, a la Batman Year One, and fails miserably at striking fear into the hearts of criminals. Beaten and discouraged, he broods in his study, uncertain what to do, when suddenly a bat crashes through his window. 
Initially startled, immediately everything falls into place, and he realizes that he must become, quote, something that has never existed before, a nocturnal avenger, relentless and compassionate, at once human and less than human, and more. It had to have a name, this being he created and became. He called it the Batman. We then go back to the present. No more daydreaming. Batman stands out on the gargoyle, perched over his victims, and steps forward and falls as he fell when he was a child, as he will fall for the rest of his life. And that's the end of the story. The end. I know you are a lot more appreciative of the Christopher Nolan movies than I am. And mm-hmm. given that, I can see why you've spoken so highly of this story. I mean, it, it, clearly it was a, a big influence on both uh, on, on Batman Begins, both in tone and structure. Right. And also... Um, just when I was a kid, I don't know if this is the first time they've addressed this whole idea of Batman having many masters, you know, throughout his upbringing, you know, learning from various people. Because, you know, the Golden Age, when we covered it, it was him in a lab looking at, you know, beakers and then him right. in a gym lifting his own barbells and doing pull-ups. And then the last panel is, yay, I'm Batman now, you know. Whereas this was more like, you know, you've got to learn all these things and be a master of many techniques so he travels the world from 14 on up you know looking for people to learn from mm-hmm. i actually don't think it's it's probably not the first time that idea has been presented because i actually think there was a story by john byrne called the many deaths of batman that may have preceded this okay which i have not read unfortunately but it was about all these people who trained batman being killed hmm. well, but uh, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense because you can learn all you can from books and whatnot, but, but but eventually you need to seek out somebody who knows these things and can you know show you the, the stuff you can't learn from books, no matter what you're trying to learn. So. Right. And I just I I kind of this story popped in my head when you asked me you know come up with a story that kind of represents why Batman endures. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, they're basically turning, what was it, a three-page origin? And two, two pages, wasn't it? Two page, oh yeah, maybe two pages. And updating it for for modern day. And it's just so easily updatable. So maybe, I, I feel like one reason why Batman sticks around is because he can, his his origin is very simple and very, very, you know, timeless in a way. But at the same time, you can, you can detail the heck out of it if you feel like it or or update it for modern sensibilities yeah and you know what's interesting I just talked to Tom Panarese about Detective Comics number 574 which Mm -hmm. came out about three years before this and is also Batman flashing back and recapping his origins uh huh but have you are you familiar with that particular uh I not off the top of my head what number Uh, 574 Detective Comics 574 let's just check out the cover no, I don't think I've read that. Okay. Um, but this one is just so much more of a, a somber and heavy telling of the origin. I mean, Batman doesn't have a cheery origin to begin. Okay, well... No. <laughs> few superheroes no. Have, have happy origins. No. <laughs> but, but with a character like Superman, I think it's easier to... Uh, you, you don't often see it spun into such a really dour direction. Because... No. This is just downright dismal. And, and I don't mean that to sound as negative as it does, but it's just very... 
he- heavy is the best word I can come up with. I mean, there's no real sense of hope or, or optimism here at all. Yeah, that's true. And with Superman, it's it's kind of funny because sometimes they do try and make him his origin, you know, filled with angst. And I guess you know an entire planet exploded for Superman to exist. So in that sense, that's kind of sad. Right. But <laughs> but but from Superman's point of view, I don't know that. I mean, I guess there are some stories where he probably remembers that, and some stories where he doesn't. But like I think of that World's Finest, where the two of them teamed up with the Steve Rude and uh, mm-hmm. Dave Gibbons. Yeah. You know, and they're both having nightmares about their origins. I always felt it was weird for Superman to be having nightmares, but like it doesn't necessarily work. But for Batman, it's like yes, it's very easy for him to just wallow and right. Disp- I mean, it's a horrible origin. There's really no way to to <laughs> no. uplift it. Even even in the campy '60s days, you know, you still your parents got gunned down in front of you. That's right, just bad. Right. Nothing funny about that. So. And with you know, compared to Superman, in in most takes on his origin he is too young to remember it because he's an infant or a, or a toddler at most but but bruce well, yeah bruce is always eight years older or more so. i didn't know if he had a you know his super baby brain can recall oh uh, well every- yeah but that's some takes anyway uh and sometimes his parents are dead and sometimes they're not or just his father and mm-hmm. so he's he has but even when those things happen he's not a a dour character right whereas in this story you know bruce has to go out of his way to be a quote-unquote rich snot and not make any friends and have human human companionship you know that shows there's scenes where he's at college where he's pretending to ask a question and then or maybe that's a different comic i'm thinking he's pretending to ask a question and you know instead he yawns or whatever or he has a you know, he has these people who are asking him, how come you keep traveling all the time? He's like, oh, I'm just bored. You know, he's obviously not bored. He's mm-hmm. trying to learn and stuff. But he never makes connections because, one, that would get in his way. And, two, heck, he might find happiness and not continue doing what he's trying to do. Right. That reminds me of, uh, like, that uh, Mask of the Phantasm. You ever seen that cartoon movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, he finds love and almost... You know, gets in the way of him being Batman because he doesn't. He's just not feeling it anymore. You know, he found happiness. Thank God that didn't work out. <laughs> uh, and then, and then she becomes the Phantasm. Spoiler alert, I guess for right two decade two two decade old cartoon. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I don't know. When I was a kid, oh, kid, this came out when I was like a freshman in high school, I guess. Um, I just liked this story because it was like. The first time I ever thought, oh, it's really cool that he had, he just went around the world and right. sought out these people and and waited three weeks just so he could boil rice for this guy who's super awesome at fighting or you know things like that. It's like Batman trained really hard to be Batman, which makes why like you know when Batgirl puts on an outfit and goes out because she has black belt and karate makes me Wins enraged. <laughs> makes me enraged, but that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, whatever. Whatever. Something else I noticed about the story is that, with exception of some through the narration, there is no dialogue here. I mean, there's no speech balloons or thought balloons. It's just all uh, third-person prose style yeah. narration. Yeah, I almost summarized the story by just reading the story. Well, you could. Yeah, I I pretty much could, but um, yeah, I found that interesting. Also, uh, connectivity between this and Year One, for instance. 
I'm not sure there's anything else. Um, but also, he's still. We've talked. I, I've talked about this with like Bailey and uh, Donovan Grant before. Like how there's always this perception that you know Frank Miller came along and then Batman has just been dark ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is around the time when all this post-crisis stuff is happening, and Year One came out. Uh, I think three years prior to this story. Right. But even in this story, he's still wearing the blue cowl and cape and the yellow buckles and and kind of looking swashbucklery and superhero like so yeah so i think it's it's cool that it's it's still it's kind of a darker origin but at the same time he's still very much superhero in this mm-hmm. um it's it's an interesting contrast though um this was like you said this was originally printed in the uh, secret origins of the world's greatest superheroes mm-hmm. uh, that, that book leads off with this story and then fills out with reprints of, of stories featuring other heroes the second story in that book was uh Man of Steel number six, right? And, and it's interesting to compare those two because, or this one and that one, because in Man of Steel number six, you've got Superman learning of his Kryptonian heritage, and then at the end, you've got the big, you know, hero shot of Superman standing majestically on top of a mountain and coming to the conclusion that, uh, yeah, he's from Krypton and and that's his origin, but none of that really matters because it's his life on Earth and and mm-hmm. the here and now that makes him who he is. And he was but, raised human, right? But here, right. but here, it's all about the origin, making Bruce who he is, and it's about his parents being killed, and the training, and the traveling around the world, and and becoming becoming Batman, and uh-huh. it it feels like it's really dwelling on that. Uh, it's uh, it's funny that the opening to that trade paperback was has a forward by Mark Wade, I believe, and it talks about how Batman's origin doesn't change, you know. Right. His his parents died. He becomes Batman. Whereas Superman, maybe his or I mean, I guess you could say that about Superman. Planet explodes. He becomes Superman. But in in the case of post crisis, there were quite a few changes. Oh yeah. To the concept of Krypton, and Superman and what he his relationship to Krypton, and so forth. So that in that sense, Superman kind of adapts by maybe changing. Whereas Batman doesn't. I guess Batman changes too, but. But uh, his origin is just so simple. It's like mm-hmm. you can't really – you can't change that his parents died and you can't change what, how he feels about that. Right. You know? Well, I, I, mean, think, I think we talked about this on, on Legends of the Batman at least once or twice. You know, you can take his origin and have it take place in 1939 or in yep. 2014 and it's the mm-hmm. exact same story. Yep. People, so. people will always be upset when their parents are gunned down in front of them. Right. Well, doesn't matter <laughs> what decade so. you're talking about. Right. <laughs> Unless they're doing the gunning, they'll always be upset. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that that trade is actually really cool. I often wonder, like, how many people have read this story because if it's only been in trade paperbacks, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a Batman collector, maybe you don't realize you need to pick up an issue or a trade paperback to get an original story. But right. um, especially back in 19, when did this come out? 1990. Yeah, nineteen ninety. Yeah, when trade paperbacks weren't as prevalent as they are now, you know. Oh, and I, it's, I it. Go ahead. I don't remember having ever seen an ad for that trade paperback in a comic that publicized the fact. You know, you know, a brand new Batman right. story. Yeah, it's actually really cool too. The cover is like Brian Boland. Mm-hmm. If anybody likes him, and it's got all the dudes that are in that book um, in their secret identities talking at a table, like in hushed whispers. 
with behind them a painting of them in their superhero yeah. outfits. It's it's actually I've always loved that cover. But uh yeah, that's a good collection. It's got Man of Steel Six and then it's got a Green Lantern story that kind of goes over his origin by way of telling his story to some new kid that he meets. And then Flash, the Infantino, Death of Flash and Origin of Flash are all I think there's like three stories put together in there. And then uh what else does it have? It has Martian Manhunter. Martian Manhunter's on the cover, yeah. And then it has Justice League uh by edited by Mark Wade. I can't remember who wrote it, but anyway, the Secret Origin is Justice League that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think the rest of the stories, with the exception of, of Man of Steel number six, are from the Secret Origins uh ongoing that was running in the eighties, late eighties, yeah. mid eighties, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, they're all pre. I think they're all pre-crisis, right? Which is which is interesting because they're all you know quote unquote updated origins, but right you know they're reprinting it at a time when post-crisis had come out, and so now they really have updated origins, but they're not printing those in the book, right? I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, and it, hmm. yeah, that would be right then because the Superman would be post-crisis because it's Man of Steel, mm-hmm. but then the others yep. would be technically crisis. And Batman is post-crisis because there's year one references in it. Okay, right. But that's – I think all the rest were – I mean I could be wrong. I don't know. But all the rest seem to be yeah. pre-crisis ideas. Although I'm not really sure – I'm not sure Barry Allen's origin really changed that much. Yeah, that's the thing. And neither does neither does Hal Jordan's necessarily. And, and actually everybody always assumes that when crisis hit that everybody just got new number ones and new origins. But it really took like – Sometimes up to like what five years or something before someone would. Yeah, I mean, uh, when have did, something retold. When did Emerald Dawn come out? Yeah, exactly. I don't so, know, but it wasn't the it wasn't eighty six. No, no, because like yeah. we talked about those issues on Green Lantern's Light, and you know there there really is no place in there when it switches. It's because it, it doesn't switch for Green Lantern until Emerald Dawn or whenever that is. So it seems like only Man of Steel really was done. You know, like a hard reboot Wonder at Woman. the time. It, oh yeah, yeah, Wonder Woman. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. DC loves their soft reboots, man. It's just they're a huge <laughs> fan. It's like, well, let's redo the origin. Okay. Well, what are we gonna do? I don't know. We'll figure it out in ten years. Okay. <laughs> just let it go. Yeah. <laughs> let it go. It's but like, anyway. oh well. Anyway. So, have you got anything else about the man who falls? Um. No, I don't know why. I just come back to this a lot again. I think it's just because I was an impressionable youth, and and I just love this idea of of Batman having to travel the world. I still think it would make a great TV show. Uh, yeah, young Bruce you know, Wayne pre-Batman. Yeah, yeah, young Bruce Wayne every season, a new location, learning something big or something. That'd be I, interesting. I can see that happening. Yeah, but I, I swear they even talked about doing that. But I don't know if who everybody talks. So yeah. whatever. Didn't happen. Well, we're we're getting Gotham pretty soon, so yes, yes, that can be a sequel to. He's in it as a as a kid, but yeah. I doubt they'll be following him around. But you know, maybe he'll be coming and going. Hey, I just got back from Africa. <laughs> Learned how to throw a spear. Check this out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for coming on. It has been really, really, really great to podcast with you again about the totally yeah. awesome Batman, if, even if it's only a one shot affair uh is there anything you want to plug i have nothing going on nothing i'll going say that's that no well, like I've, I, I have achieved a zen 
like I like I told you before we started recording, you need to start podcasting more. So I know, I know, but then I would have to podcast more. Oh well, well, yeah, yeah, and edit. It's a lot of work. But it's, thanks for having me. I appreciate the invite. It was good to talk to you guys yeah. again. You guys being you, <laughs> just me, me and <laughs> yeah, me and just my, you, me and my dog who keeps you and your voices. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, right now we're gonna take another break, and then I will be back with uh, another guest. Much as my first exposures to and earliest experiences with Batman have shaped how I view the character in his rogues gallery, I strangely can't say the same for all of his supporting cast and family of heroes. I have a strange dichotomy with Batman's supporting cast. I often see Batman as a very solitary figure, but at the same time, members of his supporting cast are absolutely critical to the character. But even though characters like Robin and Batgirl are important parts of the Batman mythos, I'd even go so far as to say essential in Robin's case, I don't have necessarily as a definitive perception of those characters as I do Batman. And I think a lot of that has to do with how and when I came into comic books. I've been aware of characters like Superman and Batman all my life. Even when I was growing up in the 80s, characters like these were such a part of the pop culture that you can't help but be aware of them. And even though I grew up on a steady diet of Superman the movie, Super Friends, and the previously mentioned Superpowers Toys and 1966 Batman show, I did not get into reading comics until 1993. By that time, Batgirl was a wheelchair-bound computer genius known as Oracle. The man I knew as Robin was now known as Nightwing, and there was a new character wearing the mask. And little did I know, at the very beginning, there had been another Robin even before him. Commissioner Gordon and Alfred were as different from the 1989 movie versions as those versions were from the ones on the 1966 TV show. Characters in the live-action incarnations, such as Vicki Vale and Chief O'Hara and even Aunt Harriet, weren't all that prominent, if they existed at all, in the comic book universe. And moreover, soon after I started regularly picking up comics, Bruce Wayne was broken and replaced in the Batsuit by a different person, which brought other sweeping changes to the Bat mythos, albeit mostly temporary ones. By coming into comics when I did, and slowly learning about the comic book lives of these characters over time, it felt natural that there had been many people using the name Robin, and I didn't find anything wrong about Batgirl becoming Oracle. That was simply their stories. And really, while Batman, at his core, has been pretty consistent for the past 75 years, the character has obviously been through a lot of different incarnations and depictions during that time. And 
the specific place of his supporting cast changes with each incarnation, uh, fulfilling a different role or, or purpose depending on how they're needed to be used, whether it's ally, family, student, sidekick, or any of a dozen others. But what doesn't change is that whether it's Commissioner Gordon or Robin or Leslie Tompkins, wherever they're at, his supporting cast is important to Batman as a character. Bill Finger and Bob Kane figured this out very early in the character's history. No man, not even a Batman, is an island. And for all of Bruce Wayne's money and fancy cars and utility belt and brooding tactics, at the end of the day, the one thing he needs most is the one thing we all need most. The love, support, and friendship of those around us. And my final guest this evening is someone I've not podcasted too much with, but who knows a lot about Batman, and I would have been remiss if I didn't invite him on. So, welcome to the show, Donovan Grant. Aw, oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. So, what book did you bring for us? Well, for this uh, particular segment, I brought uh, for the table Batman issue 674, uh, titled... One of my favorite titles, Batman Dies at Dawn, written by Grant Morrison, illustrated by Tony Daniel. It was done back in uh, 2006. Uh, this, was, this was like the beginning of like Morrison's mega Batman run. Uh, this back, but like this is like the most normal, ironically speaking, the most normal of his era in that like he was basically just writing the Batman title. This was before Batman Inc. This was before Batman R.I.P. or Batman and Robin. And... Um, I chose this issue because there, uh, it uses a lot of continuity, like, like Morrison Famous does, borrows a lot of continuity from the entire history, and uh, above all else, I really, really like it, and um, that's essentially the preliminary, preliminary in terms of like why I chose and this is also actually one of my favorite issues. Yeah. <laughs> I really, really enjoy it. Um, so, shall we, uh, shall we get into it? Sure. Okay, but, but uh, before we get into this specific issue, I should probably... Uh, do a bit of preamble with the story because this is actually part three in the the, the three ghosts of Batman storyline, and essentially, like like I'm not going to get too specific because I don't want to take up too much time. But generally, this kind of um the the overarching thread of the story is that there are three there's three opponents in, in Gotham City wearing Batman costumes, and we find out eventually that they are um, Gotham City Police Force. There is a gigantic, like, uh, monster Batman that appeared uh, previously with a Bane mask on that Batman defeated. There was one that sh- that famously shot the Joker in the face oh. in the first issue of uh, Morrison's run. And currently, uh, the the antagonist for this story in the three-parter is a, uh, a former policeman named Michael Lane, who is basically, he he's in a Batman facsimile costume, but his eyes are kind of, uh, they have like red goggles and he has sort of a red uh, iron mouth mask to cover up the, uh, the, the, the mouth part of the, of the cowl. 
And um, the storyline was set up that he attacked Gotham's uh, GCPD headquarters. Um, B- Batman showed up on the scene and he shot Batman with some sort of like, uh, not a grenade, but like he basically knocked him out and stopped his heart with a, some sort of grenade launcher and kidnapped him. Um, and then like uh, the, the story proceeds to kind of dip back and forth between flashbacks and the present st- story. The present story is basically this wacky Batman uh, tying Batman up to a chair and, 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 you know, basically taunting him and torturing him saying, haha, you think you're awesome, but you're not. And we kind of dip back and forth between Batman's uh, remembering of uh, an, uh, an isolation experiment that he took, took part in. And this is where it gets very, very historical in that this isolation experiment that's mentioned actually stems back to uh, uh, a uh, quintessential Soul Rage story called Robin Dies at Dawn. This t- that took place in Batman 156. Um, if, you ever, if anybody's ever seen the cover, it's, uh, it's a... It's a Dick Spring-esque image. It's probably done by Shelley, Shelley Moldoff, where uh, Batman carries a fallen Robin saying, Robin died! He died so I could live! And he's sobbing. It's, it's very sad. It's one of those classic Silver Age Batman covers. Yeah, I imagine that any like hardcore Batman comic fan has seen this cover before. And this is like, you know, it's way before Death of the Family, Jason Todd, 80s era. This is like Silver Age, Robin is dead, Batman's grieving kind of mm-hmm. image. Um, it's that issue. Um, and that issue, just really briefly, uh, uh, Batman and Robin are on an alien planet, don't you know? And um, Robin uh, takes a hit for Batman and gets knocked on the head and dies. <laughs> Batman kind of Batman uh, goes mad with grief, and um, he wakes up and realizes that he was he took place in an isolation experiment where he was in a room for like three days, I believe, and that Robin's alive and he's he's basically doing it for science. But um, uh, the effects of the isolation experiment and seeing Robin died had really messed with uh, Batman's mind. So he just started hallucinating Robin. Like, they would be out fighting crime. He would just hallucinate Robin dying over and over again. He would end up, you know, jeopardizing Robin's life with his actions. So he briefly he briefly retired from being Batman. He's like, I must never be Batman again. And um, these, the scenes in this issue uh, where you see Dick Grayson Robin are literally the scenes from the uh, 156. You know, obviously the artwork's different. But uh, there's a scene here where... Um, Bruce says, I must retire from crying, and, and Robin's like, no, with his mask off, that's, that's, uh, that is the scene from Batman 156. But back, back to this issue. Um, I can get a bit more into it later on, but that, in this issue, essentially, there, uh, this Batman is basically saying how they were created, him and the other two Batman from the GCPD, they were created in, in case there was ever a situation where Batman had, had died or had, you know, had gone away. Um, essentially, you know, if Nightfall happened again. And um, the, the Gotham City Police Force said, whether you like Batman or not, he has done good for the city in terms of uh, routing out crime. So in case Batman ever goes away, we need a situation where we can have uh, the best the best police force become Batman again. And so uh, the, the professor, the doctor who came up with this experiment was the same doctor from Batman 156 who put Batman in that isolation experiment, who we find out is named Dr. Hurt. And he will become a major player in the uh, Grant Morrison era of Batman. But he chose three uh, top-level excuse me, top-level GCPD uh, members to become Batman, and they all kind of went crazy because uh, it takes a, a certain amount of um, psychological dra- trauma to become Batman. And um, this current Batman, Michael Lane, is basically reacting against Batman, saying, like, you know, he, he basically went insane. And as Trad Batman, he's strapped him to, he's strapped him to uh, a chair. He's been poking, you know, he's been shooting him with arrows and, and stuff. The cover, actually, I didn't mention, is Batman tied to a chair with uh, bleeding out a, a little bit. And um, in one instance, uh, the uh, the Lane Batman goes to chop off his uh, his hand. Oh no! 
But then, because Batman is awesome, he managed to dislocate his shoulder and knock him out and free himself from his restraints. So at that point, um, the, the 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 police are on the trail. Gordon's trying to find out where Batman is. Batman chases Lane across the fence, the fence, a fence outside of the building. And while he gets away, uh, the story essentially ends with Batman saying, "I prepared for every eventuality. I've gone over every impossible situation and death trap a thousand times over every single day. I've always wondered, is there a, a, an ultimate enemy out there? And if that's the case, is is he showing me his face? And that's essentially uh, the the gist of the story. The story is basically setting up." A major arc that leads to Batman R.I.P. But in, for this, for the purposes of this story, this issue, it is the idea of Batman's plans and preparations uh, essentially being put to the test. And can he really outthink his ultimate foe? And this is a, basically a preliminary to that. And the reason why it stems back to uh, Batman with 56 was was uh, it goes to show how long the character has always been testing himself, pushing himself to his limits, and how those limits c- can be strained uh, psychologically. And that's essentially that, I believe. Um, we were uh, talking a bit, uh, Michael, uh, before then. Uh, what did you think about the story? Because you said you'd never read it before. Yeah, this was an interesting read for me because I have not read any of Morrison's Batman before this mm-hmm. issue. Um, I'd read his JLA run and Final Crisis, both of which featured Batman, but this is the first issue of his work on the actual Batman title itself that I'd read. And... I haven't really read too many spoilers, just the stuff you kind of pick up traveling in, you know, the comic book circles like we do. But I knew Morrison told a pretty long and uh, epic story during his run with Batman. So I was kind of puzzled. When he, when he first picked this issue, I was kind of puzzled how it would be and, and um, how it would kind of fit into the show here. But you were so quick to pick this issue. You said you you knew you wanted to cover this as soon as I asked you on. So, I you know I I figured there must be something here. So I went in with an open mind, and I'm going to be honest. When I when I first read it, I was kind of confused about what I had just read. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean I didn't like it. It just felt like I was reading the middle chapter of a longer storyline. But now that you have given the background on it. I, and and you relate it back to that um, the Silver Age issue, which I, I didn't know that the scenes in this were connected back to that. You know, I, I can kind of see the bigger picture, and now I, I I get more get more out of it. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, uh, just really briefly, I'll say that like when I first picked this issue up back in two thousand six. Um, so were you reading this as it was coming out? Um, I it must have actually been two thousand seven. Um, I had it was my first year of college. And I was away from it. I, I in my in my dorm room where my college area was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I was away from any comic book shop. I had an LCS back in Nashville, but I didn't know where to get my comics. So I had kind of missed the last two or three months of Batman comics. I had not you know opened a box or anything. I found one shop which I found once and never found since <laughs> that had Batman six seventy three and six seventy four, and. I, I just picked this up. I was kind of, you know, I was kind of in and out of Morrison's run. I had read it, I enjoyed it, but I wasn't really paying much attention to what was what he was doing. Um, but the thing is, I I own uh, the greatest stories ever told of Batman. Okay. And that includes Batman One Fifty Six, The Death of Robin. Oh, okay. So I actually had read that Silver Age story before. So when I saw that Morrison was calling back to that, I really really liked it. But this is one of those instances where. This I don't I don't blame you for an instant if you were confused or couldn't follow it because this is this does not do anything to hold the hand of somebody who's not familiar with Silver Age Batman. Right. This is very much like if you know the character at to a certain degree, 
then you don't need any exposition. And honestly, like, even though Batman, there's a point where Batman kind of, like, sets up exposition in his head. Well, years ago, I did this experiment, and I hallucinated Robin dying. Like, it's almost like, it, it almost reads like an untold tale, even though it's not. And um, there's certain imagery, like like a, a pink mask or whatever, it calls back, it's, it's, if you're in the know, you can like it. But if you're not, this, I, I can imagine this being a very obnoxious issue to read, <laughs> in, in fairness. It's just... Um... That type of storytelling, it it can both be a benefit and a hindrance, you know, because somebody like me, you know, I've I've got a fairly deep knowledge of comics. Yes. But but still, I was kind of lost. But yet, if you can go the other way too, and and someone who does read month after month, if you put in too much exposition and too many footnotes and and you know explain stuff too much, then they're gonna feel like you're just retreading the same information over and over. So it's it's a delicate line to to balance on yeah it's it's it does get into the to the realms of uh being esoteric because uh, like like bat might appears randomly yeah i didn't really get that either yeah that that's essentially morrison morrison uh what he was trying to do I, i've heard through interviews and um him appearing on batman and batman and just general generally reading this story he basically wanted to have batman's entire history be cohesive and fit in a post-crisis world so bat might appears Whenever he's basically, uh, whenever Batman kind of like you know is uh, he can't uh, keep a straight track of mind, like he kind of is losing it a bit, like like any sort of psychological trauma. Batman's just a natural, yeah, I say natural. <laughs> um, so he's a hallucination, essentially. Like that's how he exists in post-crisis, uh, you know, pre pre New Fifty Two era. Like Batman is a thing, but he's not actually from the fifth dimension. And they and like uh, later and later on in Batman R.I.P. Like they, uh, Batmite tells him that the fifth dimension is essentially imagination, which can kind of explain for his existence and maybe uh, Mitzia Spitalik, but we'll look into that. But um, it's it's sort of like Morrison trying to bring in all the really silly and forgotten and um, locked in the basement and never mentioned again elements of Batman mm-hmm. into a, a long history. And I personally appreciate that. Um, but uh, you having read a lot of Golden Age stories. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm not sure how familiar with the Silver Age, but generally you've read. I know you've read different eras of Batman. So, what is your general take on that as a concept of in terms of making everything into one uh, long, long uh, following narrative? Do you like that, or do you think that's a bit too much for a reader to take? I, as someone who has read a lot of comic books, I like it when I can get the references and stuff. But when I don't necessarily pick up all the references, then I feel a little lost. And mm. and as you know someone who would come into a comic not having read golden silver age or, or even bronze age batman they're probably going to feel a little lost mm-hmm. but i right. but i like it as you know if if um if he were to come on to superman and, and make references to well he kind of did with the, the new 52 stuff but yes. you know if he were to reference stories from the golden age and silver age and, and you know kryptonite nevermore or whatever from the bronze age yeah, I would get I would get a lot of, of fun out of that, but somebody else might not because they weren't as familiar with those stories. So. Well, we 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 both uh, we <laughs> as comic readers we've been in this game for a long time, and yeah. we 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 recognize that there is always a segment of fandom that not only likes what they're familiar with, but uh, the older stuff is maligned as silly and out of date mm-hmm. and can't be corny and. 
we both, uh, you and I, and also, also our, our colleagues in the podcast community have a lot of affinity for the older stuff. I mean, <laughs> your very safe avatar is a, is a, is a Jimmy Olsen image from yeah. the Silver Age. It's Kurt Swan, I believe. Um, so, like, we, we have, a, we, uh, you know, there are there are a, there is a segment of fandom that has appreciation for the older stuff just because it's either the older stuff or there's a charm to it. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, like, I, I, I understand in that, like, um, when it gets too too insular it can kind of come off as pretentious and, and almost hipsterish i think there's a balancing act and i personally think that morrison just about edges on the side of good but I, I i totally understand that like there is times where it can kind of tip over to being really really uh like like for instance um on the batman universe whenever we, we, we would talk about morrison's issues he would bring he would reference the original batwoman kathy kane um, like like myself or, or uh, Josh Bertone would be like, oh, Kathy Kane, you know, oh, this is what we know about the character. But there would be other uh, panelists on the podcast who are like, I don't know what he's talking about. And because of that, I can't really enjoy or get anything out of the story. Right. And that's kind of like, like that's, that's kind of like the double-edged sword, the double-edged sword when dealing with a writer like Morrison and a character like Batman. I think the key might be, and this could be because I came into comics with the post-crisis Superman, but to, to take those old concepts and and reinvent them in a new way. Mm-hmm. Like you said did that a lot with the post crisis superman, you know. That way you're you're satisfying the new people but yet you're also giving callbacks to the old readers too. Yeah, know. absolutely. It's it's like, uh, it's a uh modernization is always good as long as it pays respect and tries to reinterpret what's come before not replace it or uh make it outmoded I suppose. Right. Kind of along that same lines, uh one thing I did notice and that the comic doesn't have page numbers on it, but um, the page where you see the three Batman in the background and Batman's kind of like kneeling on the ground in front of him, that's really mm-hmm. the only good shot in this comic that you get of the three uh, Batman. And I found it interesting that the uh, the Batman that's the focus of this issue sort of has that golden age look. The, 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 the ears on his cowl are kind of poking out a little bit and then mm-hmm. the cape is brought in front of him. And then the one on the left, the one that has the gun, is more of that kind of um, Neil Adams, Jim Aparo look. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have the yellow oval. but um, And then the one in the middle is the big, hulky uh, Batman that I, I think people associate with kind of Dark Knight Returns. I mean, it's not yeah. that style, but you know, it's got the shorter uh, ears on the cowl. And I, I did find that interesting, kind of looking at three different representations of Batman. Yeah, it's... it's, uh, it's... <laughs> The writing is very, very uh, like it's almost like a kind of a thread going in and out of different like visualizations and mm-hmm. kind of uh, uh, I'm sure what's the word for it? Kind of like rem- reminding the reader of certain themes of you know, well the golden age Batman was like this and the in the bronze age Batman was like this and the modern age Batman is like this and kind of making them coalesce into one right wholly identifiable uh, concept I suppose. Yeah. Um, I I sort of like. Uh, talking about the story i sort of like the concept that people in power in gotham would institute a program to have a replacement for batman at the ready Mm -hmm. what do you think about that i think it's kind of funny (laughs) because uh i mean it's not a bad thing but like it's it's an interesting idea that like he's saved us so many times we are very screwed if if he dies yeah (laughs) and it's like uh i mean uh, in nightfall when bane threw him off a building in, in public I can only imagine, like, the horror that God was like, oh, man, we are screwed. <laughs> and so, like, uh, 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 the idea that, like, okay, yeah, he has psychics and stuff, but if they go away, um, 
or, or kind of going even further, like further than that, like uh, in one year later, like where Batman and Robin and Nightwing did go away, like the idea that like a, a prote- Gotham City needs a protector, and I do like the idea that the police force put upon themselves to do that. They don't, they don't just nakedly rely on Batman to pull their butts out of the fire. So mm-hmm. I think, it's, I think it's an interesting idea. It's, it's, it's one of those ideas that's, that's, it's so, it makes so much sense that it's, it's almost laughable. But it, you know, it's one of those things that like it's not dwelled upon all that much. But it is a it's a fun idea to introduce in the story. Yeah, and I like the idea that it would of course go completely wrong because <laughs> not only does that make for interesting uh, comic book reading, but you know, Batman should be irreplaceable. So any attempt to replace him should should obviously go very very wrong. But it's also hilarious because like the next storyline, uh, like like this leads into R.I.P. and then after R.I.P. was Battle for the Cowl. Where Dick, Jason, and Tim all fought for them. Okay. <laughs> Batman. Whoops. <laughs> um, now you said this Doctor Hurt was from the Silver Age issue, right? Yes. Was he called Doctor Hurt in that issue, or is it just intended to be the same Doctor? It's he. He's the, he's the same Doctor. I don't. I I've actually checked um, more often than I care to admit to see if he's named Doctor Hurt, just because. I'm wondering if uh, Morrison just. I mean, you know, he wasn't given a name, but okay. in the in the uh, original issue, it is like, like the guy with brown hair and like the uh, like the mad scientist. Uh, like he was, he was just made to be a professor character in that original issue. But right. in Morrison's run, he is a maniac. Hmm. <laughs> so it's one of those kind of things that like there's a bit of a twist towards it. But it's, it is it is uh, it's Morrison taking a, an, a, a total minor character in one issue from 1959 or whatever, and then making him into a major player for his run, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. And I, I like that stuff from time to time. you know. And, and I'm sure had I read more of Morrison's run, I would like it even more here. Right. Um, and that's not saying that's a bad issue. It's just I'm, I'm still maybe feeling a little bit lost because I haven't read more than just this one issue. So. Yeah, I kind of feel bad now. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't, don't feel bad. I mean, this is, this is you know... It's it's a good issue. I mean, I, I can see that there's there's a lot here that I'm probably just not picking up on because I haven't read the rest of it. So um, I will have to try and track down either more issues of his run or maybe the trade of the of the issues around this and and give myself a bigger picture. But yeah, this is collected in the Bat and uh, the Black Glove trade, which. Okay. Uh, I, it, like two stories. There's this story, which is a three-parter, and the previous story had the Club of Batman, which is another like 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 Silver Age whack off. Yeah, that. yeah, I love that. Yeah, National Batman across mm-hmm. the world for some reason. They, they, like, it, it's all about uh, uh, paying homage to uh, the uh, lost days of Silver Age Batman. The uh, I guess the only other major comment I had was that I've never been especially fond of that always prepared for every eventuality Batman that Morrison wrote in JLA. Mm-hmm. And we kind of have that here, even as he's being held captive and tortured, but it seems like there's more weakness here than than as Morrison depicted him in JLA. And I don't really know if weakness is quite the right word, but... Vulnerability? Po- yeah, possibly. I, I would agree. I think that, like... Um... Grant Morris is a polarizing uh, figure in, in the mainstream comic book fandom in that, like, a lot of people really, really like him. A lot of people really don't like him just because of his style. And, like, uh, a lot of Batman fans are kind of split, too, because they, they, they like the, the prepare, they always prepared Batman, mm-hmm. or they don't because Batman being a mortal kind of character, they don't really care for the idea that he can have this godlike precognition and just re- predict everything. And I, I, I think that, like, 
it makes sense for Bruce Wayne to always predict, uh, or not always predict, but try to predict every eventuality. But if you're going to do that, you want to see limits in that. You don't want to see it like to where it just gets into super, like, like, uh, not that he's not a superhero, but, you know, superhumanism preparation. But it's one of those things where it's like he knows what to do, but he can't just like, you know, like just ping and it's already solved. It's like, okay, there's at least a process to it. And um, like um, when I was a kid, Morrison's JLA was the JLA. That that was the the Justice League, how I came to know it before the animated series. Okay. And so that idea of Batman as that was sort of like I was introduced that way. Going back and reading after after reading other stuff, because I actually recently collected a couple of the original trades. Um, it's interesting how you play it because in a Justice League comic, you don't want Batman to show up every other character, but you do want him to have a place on the team. In Batman, in his own comic book, you want it to still be suspenseful as a Batman adventure and not go to the realms of, you know, he can just do anything. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally feel that Morrison does show the right side of it at least in this story that like he's vulnerable he's taking you know he's taken off guard but he gets himself out of it it's not you know like uh well this was never a problem for me ho 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 right yeah personal that's kind of how i come down on it yeah very well said and i also realized that as someone who is first and foremost a superman fan complaining that a character is too powerful or can do too much is (laughs) is a glass house where i need to be careful throwing stones so um, oh, you know. <laughs> did, did you have anything else about this? Oh, the only thing I want to say, because I know that uh, in terms of your, your special, just, I, I, it's not, I don't just like this story for the, uh, um, the continuity porn. <laughs> <laughs> I do enjoy it because just like, honestly, like, like the, the fact that it, the, the title itself, Batman Dies at Dawn, is such a comic booky title. Yes. It's, and like the cover is like, you know, how is he going to get out of this? How, how is he going to get out of this death trap? And like it's you know it's you know it's it's modern and like you know it's it's bloody and it's like you know it's violent but it evokes a lot of what I enjoy a Batman like you know he's smart he's physically adept but you know there is a bit of a vulnerability I, I mentioned before and he can get himself out of a situation but it's because just because he manages to survive doesn't mean that the threat is over he's like you know mm-hmm. is there an ultimate enemy out there and is he showing me his face that's there was a lot of this that I really, really enjoyed on a visceral level cool. in terms of getting the, the character, and that's that's kind of why I like. I this is one of my favorites, just because I felt that like this was one where like whether you know the backstory or not, as a Batman fan, I got a lot of uh, just Batman ishness out of it. And that's why I'm glad you picked it because you know it's, I, I I did get that out of it too myself, <laughs> even though I you know may, maybe plot wise I was feeling a little lost, but the the uh, like you said, the visceral uh, nature of it, I, I I really did get that. So yeah, this kind of like, there's there is there's a recognizable Batman quality to the yes. comic that that transcends any uh, story that you may not have read that took place in 1957. <laughs> yeah. You brought up the cover. I I really I really do like the cover because you see Batman um, strapped in a chair, and from the uh, side of the panel, you see a, a hand holding a drill like he's been torturing Batman with the drill and you see the shadow of the uh, do, do the do the three Batman have names um I know that the, 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 the I think one of them was called Bronca I know they're they're Bronca Mueller and Lane okay. I don't know if they I don't know if they're ever getting like you know code names like you know like like the Batman with the gun man <laughs> or, uh, I should say that this particular one Michael Lane he actually does go on to become the second Azrael 
uh, in the Batman Reborn era, like when oh. Dick, when Dick is Robin and Damien, or when Dick is Batman and Damien is Robin, like there was a lot of like cowl changing. This character actually does become uh, Azrael uh, oh. up, up until the New Fifty Two. Was Bruce okay with that, or was this when he was dead? This was when he was dead slash okay. flying through time. Oh, okay. And um, he was actually a lot. Uh, if you thought Jean Paul Valley was a bit nuts, <laughs> but uh, he was a bit more of a. Uh, 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 I don't know, but he was he was he was a bit loonier, but he was also you know a bit. He he turned a lot more morally positive than he is in this issue, and it was actually interesting that there, I actually didn't like that series, but <laughs> there was there was a continuity that followed this character. Um. Well, Don, thank you very much for coming on and and. This is the uh, – of the three issues we've covered, and you, you haven't heard the other two segments of the show, but this is the most recent um, issue in the in the episode. So it was nice to have something that's still very modern, and, and even though Morrison's not on Batman anymore, it's still um, very much of the current Batman that we're getting in comics. So it was, it was nice to look at that. Um, why don't you tell the folks where they can find you and your, your other podcasts? Oh well, f- first of all, thank you very much for having me. I always enjoy uh, waxing poetic, uh, <laughs> and we never really do much together. So it was, yeah. it was, it's, it's fun to I, like. I think this is the first time we've podcasted together since you were on that episode of Legends of the Batman. Gosh, that was that had to have been like three years ago. <laughs> A couple years ago, yeah. Uh, um. Uh, well, again, thank you very much for having me. We should do this again sometime. Yeah. Um, I uh, I've kind of excised some shows that I used to be on, but like my main shows. Uh, uh, I do uh, <laughs> for all you Batman fans out there who don't watch anime. I uh, host a uh, show uh, on the Japanese anime and manga franchise Dragon Ball Z called "The Next Dimension of Dragon Ball Z" podcast with my friend and co-host Jesse Geard. As I like to introduce him as, you can find that if you're interested on iTunes and also on dbznextdimension.libsyn.com. L-I-B-S-Y-N. Um, that's that that goes once a month. In fact, we're getting ready to record uh, episode twenty-eight this um, this week. It's a monthly show, and that we're and we're actually near the end of the series, but we have at least a year of coverage to go. And it's a lot of fun. Give it give it a shot. I, Are you covering the anime and the manga, or just? It's uh, we're covering generally the story, um, but we are pretty much yes. Like I, I tend to note the differences, but. Uh, I, I, I say if you want to follow the anime, watch these episodes. If you want to follow the manga, read these chapters because it's generally okay. it's pretty much the same story. I uh, never got into Dragon Ball, so I, I listened to the first couple episodes, but I haven't listened beyond that because I just never got into Dragon Ball. But I figure one of these days, my you know my geek journey will lead me there, and then I can catch up. With your <laughs> show, so hopefully, we can help you along the way. Yeah. Into <laughs> it's 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 it in terms of like you know talking about insular stories, it is very much a. Uh, uh, Something that like you can't just I don't I don't know if you can jump into exactly, but if you like it and don't want to learn more about it, it is it is uh, pretty cool. Um, but that's my main sh- that's my main show. Uh, I am still part of the BatmanUniverse.net. I'm not on the comic cast anymore because I dropped the books. But um, <laughs> I I, <laughs> I uh, actually once Morrison left, I I pretty much checked out. But uh, I do the commentaries. In fact, there was a recent commentary that came out where we discuss uh, the Big Chill episode of the Batman oh. cartoon. Um, and I, I, I also do specials on there. We, uh, t- uh, I recently did uh, the story Batman Ego, and we're getting ready to talk about other stories like Red Rain and Arkham Asylum. Cool. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, I've actually, like, the, in the past couple of months, been an infrequent guest on Stella's Batgirl Oracle Barbara Gordon podcast, where we, uh, you know, basically have our love-hate relationship and expose on why I like Cassandra Kane better and why I like Barbara Gordon better. So if you want to hear two people, two two 
very good friends bickering. Uh, uh, find that another and all the previous things I mentioned on the BatmanUniverse.net. And those are essentially the main shows I'm, I, I, I tend to uh, be invited on, sh- on on shows like this one and other shows. But those are my, those are my main central gigs, the BatmanUniverse.net and the Next Dimension 8 Dragon Ball Z podcast. So you're just all over the place. Um, not, not as much as I used to be, but I'm still I still have fun talking about the things that I like and nobody else does. Except that's, for people on the internet. That's what it's all about. So. Oh, yes. All right. Well, Don, thanks again. Uh, I'm going to take another break, and then I'll be back to close out the show. Excellent.
we learn? Besides the fact that I want to read more Batman. Did we figure out why Batman has persisted for 75 years? I don't know. You tell me. What I do know, though, is that Batman's resilience has a lot to do with his adaptability. From Pulp Mystery Man to Smiling Do-Gooder to Armored Avenger to the hero we deserve and not the one we need. And through it all, we can relate to Batman. Whether it's the loneliness he feels, or a vicarious thrill of beating up bad guys, or avenging wrongs inflicted upon others or us, we can put ourselves in Batman's shoes. And no, we aren't fantastically rich or trained in hundreds of fighting skills, but Batman wears a mask. Whether it's, you know, whether he's in his persona of Bruce Wayne or the Batman, he wears a mask to cover up his true self, who is really just an older version of that young boy that had his entire world shattered. And we all wear masks to cover up either some hurt in our past lives or simply something that we don't want the world to see. Uh, Whether we want to admit it or not, whether it's subconscious or intentional, we all do it. Which makes Batman a character that is very easy to get behind and appreciate. Plus, he's the totally awesome Batman. Once again, I want to give a big, big thank you to Tom Panarese, Michael Kaiser, and Donovan Grant for taking time out of their busy schedules and coming on and helping me to celebrate 75 years of The Dark Knight. These three guys are among the biggest Batman fans that I know, and the show simply wouldn't have been the same without them. And thanks to you, the listener, for joining us as well. I know this episode was quite a bit longer than the normal episode of the show, but I definitely think it was worth it. If you are interested in reading any of the stories discussed in this episode, I'll be posting a list of the stories, as well as where you can find them in reprints in the show notes at greatcrypton.com, so be sure to check that out. Also, be sure to check out the guy's other podcasts. Uh, Just as a reminder, Tom's and Don's Batman-related shows both can be found at thebatmanuniverse.net. And while Mike's not on any current podcasts, Legends of the Batman, which he and I produced for 28 episodes covering the first two years of Batman's publishing history, still can be found at batmanlegends.com. If you like what I do here or on The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, I think you'll really enjoy Legends of the Batman. But that's it for me, as well as this show's salute to 75 years of The Dark Knight. Uh, Once again, I want to thank you and everyone involved with this episode. Uh, I wear it pretty much on my sleeve that Batman is not my favorite of the two title characters of the show, but I'm pleased that I could put together this little tribute to say happy birthday to a character who is definitely a big part of my love of comic books. So thank you again, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
listening to Superman and Batman, hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. heard in this episode included Face to Face by Susie and the Banshees, Shadow Boxer by Fiona Apple, as well as a suite of Danny Elfman's score to Batman. Suites from Shirley Walker scores to Batman the Animated Series in Batman Mask of the Phantasm, and a suite of the score to The Dark Knight by Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard. If you like these songs and music, please show your support by buying the music. And the best way to do that is to head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com banner. When you do that, anything you purchase at Amazon will send a little kickback to the folks at Two True Freaks. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it does help support one of the greatest podcasting families out there. Yeah, I'm a shadow
don't know who he is behind that mask of his, but I do know when we need him. And we need him now. 